You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, so am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out... And what will you become if you don't? I I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer, and there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, ah, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, It may not. It may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if, if we can't get real with each other, then we're probably going to have to, we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, You don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is, is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out – What does motivate them? 
There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you. Right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you. Or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way, their way. We got to remember the on switch might be on in, inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. It's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. With just the political race the way it is, life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now, it's summer, so sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed. Uh, a great article that was out on June 8th, and, you know, we, we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase, to decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins, because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the the that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So anything, take a walk today, and and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that'll be talking about it, maybe at work, take a break, get out. Don't just sit around the water cooler and and keep talking about it. Instead, get up, go for a walk, even if you just walk around your building or. Um, just walk around your wherever you are at home. So positive tool, just get some exercise in you. Just simple stuff. Not You don't have to sweat it out, but something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time, eat whole foods. Don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, create a, a, create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there and just escape. And, find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see uh, in, in a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to 
talk to other people. And uh, they're calling them mastermind groups. But now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, If you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's, it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of, of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the, sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben, they're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like... Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that, and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could you hear that? It's subtle. I hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it, but tone does communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone, okay? Five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. (laughs) 
Okay. You, you, d- ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay. Tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. (laughs) This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example... Just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to, I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there's certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us.
The mind is an interesting subject, but it's also a hard thing to research. There's no real clear-cut standard definition of the mind. Wouldn't it just be nice to take a trip through the mind and know exactly how everything works? Isn't it the mind, really, that creates your identity of who you are, how you appear to others, how you want to appear? While that seems uh, so impossible to actually get in-depth and understanding about the mind, our next guest does all he can to help us take us on this trip. Um, And we're excited to have him on. Dr. Daniel J. Siegel joins us. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine and is the author of Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. Dr. Daniel Siegel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Now, this to me, I I love this topic of mind because um, it really is. It's the core to being human. I I guess that's why you take us on the journey of the heart to the heart of being human. Talk to us. How how did you get so interested in the mind? Well, you know, it started when I was in college, actually, when I was um, asked to – volunteer um, as a part of a a, a college uh, experience as a uh, suicide prevention hotline uh, worker on the phone. And I was taught that the way you focus on someone's inner mental life, their feelings, the meaning of things in their life, the story of their life, could make a difference between whether the person in crisis on the phone, the other end of the phone, chose to either end their life or continue their life. You Hmm. could keep hope alive by just identifying the mind. So that gave me a direct experience as, a, as an adolescent that the mind was really important. Talk to us about, I mean, how do we define the mind? I, I think a lot of people, we, we don't quite know how to define it. it. It's versus the brain versus the just the, the, folk, the way of thinking, our consciousness. Explain the mind to us. Well, exactly, exactly Matt. This is the issue that's so intriguing. First of all, in the various fields that work with the mind, like I'm trained as a psychiatrist, I work as a psychotherapist, I'm part of the larger field of mental health, um, you might be surprised, as your listeners may be too, that there actually is no definition of the mind, short of just saying, well, it's brain activity, but that actually doesn't really get you to what the mind is all about. That's crazy. definition of mind, and, and what happened with me was, you know, this really troubled me, actually. And so at at a minimum, what we mean by mind is right now, as you're listening to me speaking, you have a subjective feeling of it. You have the perception of it. You have the decoding of meaning of it. You have the thoughts you might have as I'm speaking. Those subjective experiences of thinking and feeling and, and memory, those are all what we mean with the word mind. They're not definitions, but they're descriptions of what we mean. Isn't that strange that we, every one of us has a mind, we process through it, we subjectively experience the world, we think, which leads also, I'm assuming, to feelings, conscious and subconscious. I mean, all of this is going on in a mind, and yet, professionally, we haven't really defined it. We don't... No, those are good descriptions, and what happened with me back in the early 90s, the beginning of the decade of the brain was so many people were saying what actually Hippocrates said 2,500 huh. years ago was that our mental life, our feelings, our thoughts, stuff like that, is just brain activity. And so what I asked in the early 90s from a bunch of uh, colleagues of mine at the university was, 
is that really the final story? Is mind simply a word we mean for brain activity? And the group couldn't come to any consensus about what the mind was. With the brain, we could talk about that, but no one had agreement. There were anthropologists, sociologists, linguists in the room. There were neuroscientists in the room. So what I offered the following week was a definition beyond just these ideas of subjective experience. And it's a, it's a long story, but the short version of it is when you look at the system that's happening now between me and you, Matt, mm -hmm. it's a sharing of energy and information flow. Energy meaning the sound that I'm making from this body I live in is actually leading to electrical changes in the phone I'm on. It comes and it actually makes the speaker uh, shake uh, air molecules, which is what sound is, and that's energy. So when it's in certain patterns that have symbolic value, it's information. Like if I say radio program or if I say, you know, uh, uh, life, these are all symbolic forms of energy. So mm. energy and information is flowing between us in a relationship. And it's exactly what we mean when we say brain firing. We mean energy and information flowing not just in the head but throughout the whole body. So in this group a long time ago, I said, well, if there is, one process, energy and information flow, that is both happening inside your skin and case body, let's just call that the brain, and between you, let's just call that relationships, then what would the mind be if it was shared by both an inner experience, energy and information flow within you, and between you, energy and information flow shared, and through a long line of kind of deep scientific reasoning, which I describe in this new book, Mind, you can say that there is what's called an emergent self-organizing process that regulates energy and information flow, and that's straight out of a field called mathematics. And in this mathematical view, what's really exciting about it is when you define the mind as the self-organizing, emergent, where is it, embodied and relational, what does it do? It regulates energy and information flow. Then you can ask the next question, which is, if that's a good definition of the mind, if it's a workable definition, how would you optimize self-organization to actually define what a healthy mind is? And what I describe in the book is, in the last 24 years since that proposal was made, we now have a ton of research available all around the world to show the following things that are supported by that view. Optimal self-organization comes when you create something called integration, when you differentiate parts of their relationship. You and I can be different from each other, but then we link with respectful communication. That would be an integrated relationship. You can show when people in a relationship like that, they're healthy. Mm. And in the brain, too, you can show when integration is there, you're healthy. So integration is how you make optimal self-organization, and it looks like, from the evidence we have now, that that hypothesis, a healthy mind is a mind that creates integration inside you and between you and others in the world, that looks like it's supported by the empirical research we have now. Wow. And it has to be – I guess the mind has to be done in, um, in interaction with others and with life. It can't be done in a vacuum. Exactly. Well, think about, like, if you and I went for a walk on the beach, right, either on a lake or, let's right. say, the ocean, um, you know, 
if you said, well, what's the coast? And you said, is it the water of the lake or the ocean, or is it the sand, you know? Mm. And I said, hey, Matt, it's both. You can't have a coast without water and land. That defines it. It's the two things. I think it's the same thing with the mind, and I think that's why we've been so, in a way, perplexed, because we want to put it in one place. We Mm. want to say, well, your mind comes from inside your head, and so, you know, for 2,500 years, people have been saying this, that the mind is just brain activity in, in certain forms of science, and, you know, this allows us to actually see that it's both inside you, the brain is really, really important, for sure, but just as you're saying, the mind is beyond just brain mm. activity. It includes our relationality, our connections to each other. And then suddenly everything starts making sense about why the best predictor of your medical health, the health of your body, your mental health, the health of your mind, how long you live, your longevity, and actually how happy you are, the best predictor of all four of those things, are your supportive relationships. And that's because the mind emerges from them. It isn't just shaped by them. It comes from your relationships. Interesting. So and in, in a way, you're explaining something that forever we would have studied through the body, but you can't really understand the mind through a body paradigm, right? And, I think that's absolutely true. And you can't understand it even just through a psychological paradigm or through a spiritual paradigm. You kind of need the space between each of those. You know, the space between is exactly... It. And I, I used to do work with John O'Donohue, who was a, a wonderful spiritual man who died about nine years ago. And his last book was called The Space Between Us, to bless the space between us. And, you know, we used to work on, he was a Catholic, former Catholic priest and a uh, philosopher and a poet. And we used to talk about how, you know, if you look deeply at human experience, and this is why the subtitle of the book is, you know, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. And I talk about John a bit in the book. You know, I invite the reader to actually not just get a download of information, because that exists in lots of books, especially about the brain. But I say, look, let's go on a journey together in this book. Let's ask some fundamental questions. And let's see what you as a reader experience in addressing the questions so that you are going to have an experience now that is beyond just gathering information. And what people have said so far when they've read the book is, it's more about transformation. It's about actually changing your perspective on what you're capable of, expanding that, of who you actually are, expanding that, and actually deepening an understanding of how to create well-being in your life. That's so, re- Yeah, that's what it's about, yeah. right? It's, it's well-being. It's about health in all aspects of our life. Exactly. Well, this is the thing that's been so, i got to say, unbelievably uh, exciting about this, and I feel so grateful to be on this journey with so many wonderful people, which is this. Once we define the mind, rather than having no definition, which mm-hmm. is the amazing reality, I've asked like 100,000 mental health professionals, and only about 2 to 5%, <coughs> excuse me, say they were offered a definition of the mind. And so what we can see from that is that, you know, even the field of mental health, my field, has kind of been out of its mind. So (laughs) now we have this idea that, okay, well, you could use this working definition of the mind, and it's not in contrast to other definitions, actually the only definition out there short of brain activity. And then you say, okay, if that's true, here's a healthy mind, and then you get to the integration piece. And then you look at the research over the last 24 years, and you go, 
an integrated brain, according to the Human Connectome Project, which is looking at different areas of the brain and how they're linked. It's called the connectome. Hmm. The best predictor of every measure of well-being that they could find and looking at every combination of the way the brain is put together that they could study, the best predictor of well-being is how, what the way they use it, the term is how interconnected the connectome is. What that means is how the differentiated areas are linked, which means how integrated the brain is. So now we can say that every factor of well-being that could be studied was best predicted by how integrated your brain is. And then if you look at every study to date anyway, of people with serious psychiatric challenges, you know, like people with schizophrenia or manic depressive illness or autism, you know, where there are challenges to well-being, you can show integration is impaired, and Mm. those are not caused by what parents do, but in situations where kids have experienced severe abuse or neglect, they too have impaired integration of the brain, and so interventions whether it's in therapy or in families or in, you know, in our communities, interventions that help promote integration and help bring people from these challenging states to more integrated mm. well-being. Love it. Uh, we're learning about your mind, folks. Uh, interventions to promote healthy integration in the mind as well. We'll come back more with Dr. Daniel Siegel and his book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining me on the phone is Dr. Daniel Siegel. Daniel uh, received his medical degree from Harvard University and completed his postgraduate medical education at UCLA with training in pediatrics and child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry. He has served as a National Institute of Mental Health Research Fellow at UCLA and is a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA. Uh, currently, he's also the founding co-director of the Mindfulness Aware, uh, Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. And his most recent book, titled Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, was released on October 18th. Uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel, thank you again so much for being with us. A pleasure to be here, Matt. I really, th- to me, this is a just a love of mine, this topic. Um, and also, especially because two hours ago I had to talk about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and the stress we're all under. But it's, it's yeah. interesting because it's impacting our collective mind, right? It's impacting... As we interact on this, as it, if we're feeling all of this tension, all of this anxiety about this, it's our mind that's being stressed, isn't it? Well, exactly, exactly. And it is a collective experience we have, you know. And, and you know, if we want to get really concrete about it, you know, you get in an elevator and there's this glum feeling or, you know, I went to the gym this morning and after the person was done on the elliptical and I was getting on, there was a news report on and I said, how's the news? He goes, it's all bad. <laughs> you know, and I could feel him and everyone. You the energy. Feel heaviness yeah. that's there. And it is a shared it is a shared experience of mind we have, and I think the, the the downside of that, of course, is that, you know, we can influence each other and, you know, start feeling bad. But the upside is we really belong in a larger social network, and unfortunately, and I think this is one of the 
points I, w- I hope the book can have people start to talk about is that, you know, with the view that um, science and society has held that the mind kind of just comes from your head, or at least comes from your body, and the self that comes from the mind is a solo thing, we feel very isolated. We feel like we don't belong anywhere. And it can lead to a lot of suffering, a lot of despair, and it actually may be a false view that the mind is not just coming from inside your skull. It's not even coming from only inside your skin. You could say, well, how can that be? Well, energy and information flow is not limited by skull or skin. And you realize that it's shared even now between me and you and everyone listening to us. So this is the exciting opportunity we have to open up the conversation through the media, through the schools, through science, through family life Hmm. that says, look, you're not just a me, you're also a we. And the way I end the book is I talk about how an integrated identity would be honoring both the internal experience of mind, which is, let's call it me. So I want to know my history. I want to make sure I get good sleep for this body that I'm given the opportunity to take care of. I want to feed it well. I want to exercise it well. That's all good and important. That's me. We differentiate that experience of self. And then we say, hey, you know, there's a, an interconnected self, a relational self. Let's just call that a we. And we want to honor that, too. We don't want to just say it's icing on the cake. It is just as much a part of the cake as your body. So you go, okay, well, wow, then my relational self is a we. My inner self is a me. How do I integrate that? And that's where we come up with this simple three-letter word, we. M-W-E, you say, that's really your identity, that we are a we. And together, we can make things happen. And especially with the election year, you know, um, whatever the result is going to be, we need to come together as a nation, literally, and make things better, whoever we've chosen as the president. And that's really the bigger issue. And it's also true not just with the United States. We have to do this on our planet, since mm. we're also deeply influencing each other. So is that when you say integrated, do you mean an integrated mind that is integrating the we, the me and the we, um, but also integrating, I guess that is my body and your body and our relationship. I mean, it's it's really we've got to we've got to, and I guess is what you're saying, um, Doctor Siegel. The lack of health comes when I guess we're too focused on the me. Yes. Versus or I mean, the other way, or the or the we focused on a we. But you Even don't want to do yeah. that either. You want to right. balance the two. Interesting. So, so yeah. what can I do just in my life, day in, day out, to, to, uh, to facilitate more of the we mentality? Mm-hmm. Well, one, one simple um, pattern that emerges from defining the mind is, one, we've said that integration is how you optimize self-organization, which is our definition of mind. And that you realize it's both within your whole body, not just your head, and it's also between your body and other people or other things in the planet, your pets, the, the, the environment, all sorts of ways we're connected in the world. And the interesting pattern that comes from that is health comes from integration, but then you can ask the question, well, how would I know if integration is not there? And amazingly, there's a very simple pattern of either chaos in your life, or 
rigidity. So it's kind of like a river. The central flow of the river is harmony, which comes from integration. That's health. And one bank outside of this river of well-being, of integration, is chaos. The other side of the river, the other bank, is rigidity. So the first thing to say is if you start noticing a lot of rigidity in your life or a lot of chaos, it's a kind of red flag that should say to you, hey, something isn't quite integrated enough. Now, depending on what's going on, and I talk about this in the book, there's, there can be too much uh, linkage. Like in some families, there's not uh, an encouragement of people to find their own differentiated identity, the thing a person particularly likes, and so they're clinging to just being a part of a larger group. That can lead to chaos or rigidity, or at the other extreme, it can be where you're excessively differentiated. You're too much me, 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 and that also hmm. can lead to chaos and rigidity. So the, the first big way to respond to your question, Matt, which is a great question, what can we do, you know, is to say <clears throat> chaos and rigidity show you that the balance of differentiation and linkage, what creates integration and well-being, is not there, and then you want to explore, okay, well, how is it not here in my life? What people have found, which is so exciting, is that when they detect chaos or rigidity, they realize they're empowered to do something themselves with their lives right there hmm. and say, I got it. I can shift this way where I'm too much of a me, let's say, in that one example. And I can start realizing that what I do to help other people not only helps other people, it actually helps me. In so many studies, it's really clear, if you want to be happy, help someone else. Hmm. And if you want other people to be happy, help someone else. So the ways we reach out and connect, even when people are suffering, so you say, well, but they're suffering, I don't want to get connected with that. Actually, it's just the opposite. When you compassionately reach out to someone suffering, both of you benefit from that. And I think the reason is, is we're way too isolated. And in this isolation, there's a sad feeling of of being basically not belonging anywhere. And the mind needs to belong. And we need to create a new kind of culture in our modern society that recognizes that the mind emerges from this we. That's really where it comes from. And any... Um, uh, excessive deviation of too much this way or too much that way is going to actually give us a lot of suffering, and we can actually do something about it. Oh, I see this a lot in relationships where they're arguing, but what they're arguing about is the rigidity of one and the chaos of another, and yeah. and, and how we throw each other into these storms or into these discomfort zones. And I guess one of the things I hear you saying is that when you notice that that's happening, it's a sign of a lack of integration. And instead of, you know, retre- retreating back to your typical way, figure out another way to do this. Exactly. And this is, you know, what you just summarized in that last phrase, what you just said, the whole sentence, is exactly the whole model. And it comes from deeply scientific thinking based on research established findings that then empower you to take exactly what you said, Matt, and say, okay, wow, so the pattern is rigidity and chaos, show me something's off in integration. Yes, that's right. And I can do something as an individual to explore my relationships or explore the way my own inner life is working and then find ways to create more integration. 
The answer is yes. And then when people do that, do they actually have a big transformation in how their life is going? And the answer is yes. Mm. So that's the whole thing. Yeah, right? it's, all, it's all yes and yes. Oh, yeah, I love it's it. Remarkable. Yeah. Right? And so we just want to get the word out because, yes, you can do this individually, and that's really, really important. But people need to know that the mind is not just something that happens inside their brain. And that's sadly what, you know, I'm a scientist and what science has been telling us for 2,500 years to find a new way to have a conversation with each other about who we really are. Love it. Dr. Daniel Siegel, uh, best of luck to you and this wonderful new book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. Folks, this is how we change our lives. We change our minds. And we do it uh, through integration with one another and with the world around us. Powerful stuff, folks. Helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. (sighs) When was the last time you just stopped by a drive-thru to grab a burger when you were hungry? I know I want to do that today because Sadie was talking earlier about In-N-Out Burger. Or when was the last time you headed to the grocery store to replace the week's worth of groceries you left to rot in the back of the fridge? We live in a country where food is readily accessible, and we often take that for granted. Americans waste $165 billion in food each year. Wow. So our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to enlighten us on, our, on five of her suggestions on how we can all help fight food waste. I love food. It's my number one language of love. I love smelling it, cooking it, eating it, and giving it. The other day, I was literally playing in and being buried in a massive bin of corn kernels. And my friend brought up the thought that we are bathing in food and throwing it in the air, while other people in the world would have to walk miles and labor hours for a handful of those kernels. in such a luxury where people can pick out their unwanted veggies and throw them into the garbage or leave pizza crusts in the box or let the groceries in our fridge rot because we can just head to the grocery store and get more. But did you know, according to the World Food Program, one in nine people on Earth doesn't have enough food to live a healthy and active lifestyle. Each year, 2.6 million children die as a result of hunger-related causes. wasting food. I hate seeing people dump their leftovers in the garbage or down the drain and just because it's too inconvenient to get a Tupperware dish out. So, to do my part in fighting world hunger and to help you value your precious edible treasures, here are five creative ways to fight food waste. Get a smaller plate when you go out with your friend because you know she isn't going to eat her entire meal. 
taco big enough for a man like me. That's why I order two or three. This requires observance and planning skills. You must observe your friend to see how much she typically eats, and then be willing to adjust your own portion so you can also finish hers. Plan ahead because you might also have to adjust depending on the restaurant, time of day, and size of your previous meals. Just take the rest home in a doggy bag if you wanna. You can finish it mañana. Take leftovers and give them to homeless people. Just the other day, I was walking out of my house and there was a homeless man crawling out of my dumpster. And my roommate and I have been searching for him every day since then to offer him a bread bowl. Have a dollar. In fact, no, brother man, here have two. Two dollars means a snack for me, but it means a big deal to you. But don't give them those nasty, crusty, frosted cookies from the grocery store because those always seem to be what's left over, and there's a reason for that. Don't encourage diabetes. Hey! Remember the animals. I have literally taken a loaf of moldy bread out of the garbage to take it to the pond to feed the ducks. Only, I think they must have been really full that day because for some reason they didn't seem to like it. But it's a two-in-one benefit. You don't waste food, and you have a fun outing with a friend. Oh, except I just googled it, and I guess moldy bread can be toxic to ducks. <laughs> so maybe don't do that. Freeze everything. This is one of my favorite tactics, and the reason why my roommates glare at me. I freeze everything. Before something expires, I pop it in the freezer, and it preserves the shelf life for months. Meat, veggies, fruit, cheese, even bread. The leftover burrito. Can you say free meal? Free meal. Just make sure to have a leftover party to cook up all that frozen stuff, so your roommates have enough room in the freezer for their ice cream. Five. Get to know your neighbors. I'm still I'm young. If you find yourself with a week's worth of wedding leftovers in your fridge, before you dump it in the trash, think about how you can bond with your community over nearly expiring food. Invite them over, talk, laugh, and whip out the leftovers. Don't worry, there will always be a group of desperate college students, no matter where you go. Congratulations! It's a beautiful, healthy food baby. It's so beautiful. I didn't know that I was starving till I tasted food. So today, when you go to your fridge, remember the 2.6 million dying children. Take a few extra minutes to pull out the Tupperware or to cook up the leftovers. Fight world hunger. Fight food waste. And remember, the only thing you have my permission to throw away are those nasty frosted cookies. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Let me give you some principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, They're and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world. But if I, if I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware – 
meaning they could understand how they influence others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their, their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses. If I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to, to take that self-awareness and develop it into you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things, how cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if, if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what, they come, what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they, are they, do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves. Like, what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice, really, that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat, and when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. Try to identify from what they're saying about themselves. What do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling if they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we, we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of care. <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point... Caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is, is, is something bigger than that. Caring is also – it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility, you know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog. And even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life. I, I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So we've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they, they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our th- thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. 
and we try to preserve the things we care about, we can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow, then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware, care, share, dare. Basic skills, folks. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour. And they have too many thoughts coming in. And it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. Ninety percent of thought you don't even think about. How much and how much of this has to do with social media, TV watching, reading, oh, yeah. reading? Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media, and your your brain at one level is still processing it, and then you might actually bring it into the the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head, and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts. That I bring up, I mean, I'm sure if I talked to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts, are they stay in your head because of energy, right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head and to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, The thought about scheduling, your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed. Uh, Appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't – they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. No, but see, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy – to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar, that energy would help eliminate the thought. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night 
and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that – I mean that – you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it will go away? Well, I might do it this – when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say let me go check on that. I would say right, let me check and I check right now because – I'm doing it now, so I don't – otherwise, I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I'd just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But – you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads. Or, you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to – that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes and they inspire me. 
And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes. They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our, nice to our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh, well, I think you do me more credit than I deserve. No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids Latin. sitting in class <laughs> studying Latin. I love – that was my favorite subject. You are one of the rare few. I'm fluent in a dead language. Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people – um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right, right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90% of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone. 90%? 90%. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages? Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages that we're aware of on Earth. And about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used Mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names that we all are familiar with. Like English. English, maybe Spanish. Spanish. Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Although um, kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Em, well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language. Mm-hmm. You lose your culture. Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely. You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other, to understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university. It's still The thing is, though, is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages? Um, that's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas, and as seawater levels rise, they ha- these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities, and all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment. Changing, changing our languages and the culture. Yeah, and taking away the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I I speak Spanish, and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend 
that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's We have a word like love, mm-hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife. It's not the and same we don't thing. differentiate. <laughs> you know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can. But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that, that just means. means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, square up dad. I'm like you want me to punch you. But he just it's just I don't know what it is. It's just being sounded Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? Do you want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm-hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming, apparently. Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by you know, decades and centuries before this of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation Mm -hmm. of different cultures. Uh, That's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, For years, they had forced education things that they were, these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages. And now nobody can. Yeah, and and our intolerance to everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might, we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah, we definitely, we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man, McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean, really, folks, did you even think of that? Powerful. What we lose when we, I mean, 7,000 languages, we could lose 90% of them. Crazy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be back. Well, there are some people who can uh, be notoriously reluctant to give up control. Have you ever met these people? Often uh, we may find ourselves hesitant to delegate tasks and decision-making to others, even when they would benefit from doing so. Yet anyone who has worked in a large organization will tell you that just as often uh, decisions can get passed from person to person, making it difficult for everyone to get the work done that they need to get done. So how do we encourage delegating when it's beneficial and reduce it when it's not? Mary Steffel joins us, a marketing professor. She is uh, here today to talk about some research she's been performing on uh, decision-making. She's an assistant professor of marketing at the Damore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University. Dr. Uh, Professor Steffel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on the show. What a, uh, I think, an interesting topic. Uh, decision-making and, and delegating. I mean, we. it seems like if you're in the position of leadership, right, if it's your title, if it's your job, we should just make decisions. But it seems like a lot of people want to avoid it. And I guess that's what you've been studying is why we are so uncomfortable with it. Absolutely. Uh, Our research finds that when people are in a position of making decisions that are going to affect other people rather than just themselves, they're more likely to delegate those decisions to someone else. Hmm. And what, uh, why is it? Why, why would they delegate it? it? Is it just simply because 
it's affecting them? I want them to make their own choice? Or am I being a nice guy or am I just not, not – I'm shirking my duty? Well, we find that the primary reason why people tend to want to pass these decisions off to somebody else is that the burden of choosing for somebody else is actually greater than choosing for yourself. So you're more concerned about how responsible you might feel if the other person's unhappy or – uh, upset about the outcome of the decision. And you're also um, upset, uh, worried about being blamed by that person as well. So it's both sort of how that person's going to feel toward you uh, in terms of blame, but also how you're going to feel yourself um, in terms of your own feelings of responsibility if you inflicted some kind of negative outcome onto somebody else. Mm-hmm. So we turn it over to them. Um, and then that, that, I guess, that seems like a, a kind of noble thing to do. Then they, they get to make the decision for themselves. But sometimes they also don't have the insight, the experience, the history they need to actually make the decision. Absolutely. And then actually the research that we did, it's always a case in which you're not actually handing off control of the decision to the party who's going to be affected. You're actually handing it off to a third party. So if I'm a... a a manager and I'm in charge of making a decision uh, that's going to affect other people in my organization, I might delegate that decision to uh, uh, another manager, a coworker, or perhaps my boss and have them make that decision instead. Ah. No, I've seen that. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> in the end, it's so, so what got you interested in studying this, uh, Mary? What was it about this decision issue that you said, okay, we got to figure this out? Well, I think a lot of times we think about decisions as something that happens inside our head. And I think that's a really simplistic view of how we make decisions every day. We don't just make decisions in our head. We make decisions in a social context. Our choices are affected by the the people we're surrounded with, um, how those decisions are going to affect other people. And so it's something that's always fascinated me, whether we're talking about decisions in an organization, uh, like uh, um, how to allocate resources in an organization or um, uh, decisions that might affect somebody else's outcomes, whether that be um, in a sales setting, so when a, a customer might delegate a decision to a salesperson, but then also even in medical situations where you might delegate a decision to a doctor as a patient, um, I, I'm very interested in these dynamics of what prompts us to want to put those decisions in someone else's hands. Hmm. And it's uh, it really is, boy, every, I, those brought up so many thoughts, making a medical <laughs> decision. Like I think of uh, you know, my father-in-law may make a different decision about his medical uh, choices than I would because he's a doctor and, um, oh, it's interesting. But to to delegate some of these responsibilities to others puts a lot of pressure on other people. It absolutely can, although in many cases, these might be, you know, like speaking of delegating decisions to your doctor – these might be decisions that doctors are perhaps well-versed in mm-hmm. um, uh, and make on a, a regular basis, whereas, you know, as a patient, this may be something that you encounter pretty infrequently and maybe don't have a lot of background or experience in making. Is, are there certain people that are just better at taking control and making the decision? Are there certain, like, personality types? Our research doesn't necessarily point out... Per- uh, certain personality types that are more likely to delegate decisions, but we can say under what circumstances people are more likely to delegate decisions versus 
uh, make those decisions themselves. Mm. Um, you know, one factor that comes into play is uh, sort of the authority of the person that you might delegate the decision to. So um, I might feel very comfortable delegating the decision to a peer or uh, somebody who is a supervisor of me, but I might not feel very comfortable delegating the decision to somebody that I supervise. Interesting. And yeah. And that's because delegating to someone I supervise, I don't really feel like I can be absolved of the responsibility of that decision because I still feel responsible for supervising that individual. Yeah, so it's kind of, we will delegate up or lateral, we don't delegate down as much. Absolutely, absolutely. That's interesting, too, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, I was thinking if I had to fire somebody, I'd rather have my boss do it. <laughs> so, I mean, here you go. Here's, I'm afraid to do it or it's hard to do. But really, I guess part of it, too, is um, – so some of this you're saying is the authority might might matter and it might make it easier for me to allow a, a bigger authority figure to do it. Absolutely. So part of that is status. So whether the person is a, a superior, superior or subordinate. Another piece of that are maybe the, the rules in your organization. If you delegate that decision, who's going to be officially held responsible for it? Are you still going to be accountable for the results of that decision? Or is uh, whoever you delegate that decision to going to be officially held responsible? Do, do you sense that are we more uncomfortable today than we maybe were 30, 40 years ago when it comes to delegating? Do we delegate more? And, and is it because of that fear of who's accountable? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think certainly um, in, in many domains, um, litigation and, and concerns about, um, you know, having to pay a penalty for making a decision that might uh, have a cost for somebody yeah. else is something that I think people might be especially afraid of um, uh, today than maybe a few decades ago. Um, and that certainly can contribute to why people might prefer not to have that responsibility in their own hands. Mm. It's, it seems like, is this something that, did you notice that people get better at the more they delegate or the more they, they actually don't delegate and make their decisions? Do they get better at making these decisions? Um, or is that, you know, does my boss, when I keep asking him to fire somebody, um, does, does my boss get better at that or or does he still hate that? Now, I'll, by the way, by the way, Mary, now my entire team are shuddering. They're afraid. They're all like, are you talking to the boss? Right, right. Well, you know, um, we don't know a lot about, you know, who's going to be better at making those decisions than others. And, you know, if you're constantly delegating decisions to your boss rather than taking that ownership yourself, you know, there certainly might be a fear that you could be perceived as somebody who's not capable of handling the responsibility that's mm. been given. And so that could certainly be a concern about repeatedly delegating to somebody else. At the same time, I think a lot of evidence from, the, you know, research on how people work in, in companies and in organizations suggests that people often err on the other side um, by kind of taking on too many responsibilities for themselves and being afraid to actually allow others to help them execute those tasks and um, maybe delegate decisions to others when it really would be better off for them to do so. Mm. Is And I know your your uh, experience is in kind of the organizational development side of this, um, but does this apply at home? Like my wife delegating the discipline to me 
or <laughs> my wife delegating certain decision making functions to me that could have easily been made by her. Absolutely. I, um, one of the things that I think we find really interesting about this topic is that I think traditionally it's been studied only in particular contexts. Um, you know, maybe only in most commonly in medicine or in organizations, um, or maybe even in sales contexts where people might hire an interior decorator or financial mm. advisor to help them make decisions. But um, I think delegation is something that happens all the time. We yeah. delegate to our friends what movie we should go see, to our partner, you know, how we should discipline the kids or um, what we should have for dinner. Uh, and, and I think part of uh, what we find so interesting about this is to kind of illuminate how common this really is and, and, and how it's not just specific to people who are in a particular role. Um, in fact, um, people are very willing to delegate to people like a friend um, or um, an acquaintance that doesn't have any more knowledge pertinent to the decision than they themselves do. So expertise doesn't seem to be critical to mm-hmm. Uh, why people might want to delegate a decision to somebody else versus for themselves. It's certainly attractive. We'd rather somebody who knows what they're talking about make a decision. But um, when it's a a decision for somebody else or between outcomes that we know, whoever is the recipient of that decision isn't going to like, we'd really rather put that decision in somebody else's Mm. hands. Yeah, good Good learning. Good learning. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Mary Steffel. She is a researcher and assistant professor of marketing at the DeMore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University and uh, is walking us through some of her research on why we are so uncomfortable making decisions for others, why we tend to delegate so much. Stick with us. A little learning for all of us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Learning today how to delegate and when to delegate and when not, when it's just a cop-out. You're just copping out. There's just certain times you might need to step up and make the decisions or at least start thinking about why you choose to delegate so many um, decisions, why you're so uncomfortable doing it. And so we are honored uh, to have with us on the phone... Uh, a great professor and uh, expert in the subject. She's an assistant professor of marketing at Demore. I think it's Demore. Demore McKim will ask her School of Business at Northeastern University. Mary Steffel's her name. Mary, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What is the name of the school? So I'm not destroying <laughs> the Demore McKim School of Business. Demore That's McKim, right. beautiful, beautiful. And uh, we appreciate you. A PhD in marketing, and yet you're you're making a decision. Uh, I mean, you've done research about decision-making. It makes sense, right? Because marketing is about getting people to make decisions. Absolutely. Um, I think we're all, whether we're in marketing or public policy or or in our day-to-day lives, in the business of changing people's behavior. And so as a professor of marketing, that's that's very much uh, what I'm interested in is uh, how to help people make better decisions and understand how they prefer to make those decisions. So sometimes we pass on the decision. I mean, I see that a lot. Yeah. Um, my wife, I'll even pass it on to my wife. Like, do you want to, someone will come to my door. Do you want to buy this or that? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to have my wife make that decision. 
Um, <laughs> and I, I delegate it to her or she delegates it to me. And some of that, I guess, is just proper, you know, role playing, but or whatever we want to call it. But a lot of times we're just we're dodging the responsibility. We have a fear Absolutely. that and I don't want to. I'll make decisions for myself, but I don't want to obligate you or the company in a way that will come back and bite me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I think a lot of people sort of have the assumption that it's just about blame. It's just about covering your behind, yeah. and making sure that people aren't going to point a finger at you. And that's definitely a part of it. We find that when people know that the people who are going to be affected by the decision are going to know that it was them who made that choice, they're especially likely to delegate in those situations. But what's interesting is that compared to when you're just making a decision for yourself, you're making a decision for somebody else, even if they're never going to know it was you, you're still actually more likely to delegate those decisions. Hmm. So it suggests that it's not just about blame, yeah. but it's actually, there's a piece of that, it's just, I feel guilty, I feel bad if I make a decision that I think you're not going to like. Ooh, it's like you're, yeah, it's like you're taking... It, uh, I would feel bad. Well, I guess that's just my psychology. Um, I I actually like I would rather the person that has to implement the decision make the decision. And absolutely. And in, in our scenarios, we, we didn't give people that option. Yeah. It was a situation yeah, you forced in which they the had to either make the decision for that other person or allow you know, some other individual to make that decision for the other person. But certainly there are many cases in which um, we might rather let that person make the decision for themselves, both because we don't want to be on the hook for that person's happiness and outcomes, but also because I think all of us, especially, um, you know, in today's day and age, really care about having the freedom to make decisions for ourselves. And I think we appreciate that others might feel that same way. Hmm, no, totally. Is there, so let's say we want to get better at this so we are more comfortable doing it. What are some things that we can do to to get in and make the decision and to actually do it effectively, do it well? Well, I think one thing to do is to perhaps focus on the decision itself and um try to evaluate whether you feel like you can effectively discern what the best option is. And regardless of whether you're choosing between options that are all attractive or options that are all unattractive, um, you know, that, that could help a little bit. I think one of the bigger things, though, is kind of thinking about, um, you know, if you can get some kind of reassurance that you're not going to necessarily be blamed for the outcome mm. that can free people up to feel comfortable making those decisions for other people. Preserving people's anonymity when they're making these kinds of decisions that might be controversial or have uh, something of a backlash to them um, can help, but won't completely eliminate the tendency to delegate. Um, each of those things could make somebody a little bit more confident, a little bit more willing to step forward in yeah. these decisions. Well, I guess, too, just gathering input, right? Just mm-hmm. asking people's ideas, not delegating it to them, but going to the people you may delegate it to and just ask them what they are thinking. And then, Absolutely. and then you, I mean, the cool thing about it is if you're supposed to make the decision anyway, you're, you'll just be more informed. Plus you'll get some insight, some buy-in. And if you wanted to, you could still just make the decision the way they would do it. Absolutely. And you mentioned something uh, there about, you know, ask the person what their preferences might be. Um, I've done some work on perspective taking, which is mm. sort of the idea yeah. 
the, the common sense notion that if you're making a decision for somebody else, you should just put yourself in their shoes. Imagine what life is like through their eyes. And actually, as it turns out, across a number of studies, we find that putting yourself in somebody else's shoes uh, doesn't help. And if anything, it, it makes you slightly worse. Does it really? Decisions <laughs> on behalf of others. And, and what's much better is actually taking the time to have a conversation with somebody, ask them for what their preferences are, rather than... Um, perspective take, mm. uh, we call it perspective getting, get their perspective out. That's great advice. It's, um, I guess because, so it doesn't work, perspective taking doesn't work because you're really not, you're still in your head trying to understand them. Perspective getting is them explaining what they need. Exactly. And when you're trying to figure out what somebody else's preferences might be, you know, putting yourself in their shoes and, and and, and following that advice, it, it sounds like great advice, but the, the thing is, we probably have a lot in common with that person for whom we're choosing that could help us make a good decision on their behalf. Mm. And when we perspective take, what often happens is we kind of try to ignore all that commonality that we have and try to think about what makes that person think. And, um, uh, you know, oftentimes we don't have as good of information about that other person as we have about ourselves. And so whatever we end up coming up with may not be very accurate information. You know, oh, it's so true. We're so pathetic, Mary. Um, <laughs> because what's funny about the whole thing is sometimes I, when I'm worried about having to make this decision, just going to find out more information, you realize it's not even a decision you need to make or you may, you realize it's a very easy decision. So you don't need to mm-hmm. fret. You just... The more data you have, I guess, I mean, in the end, it it could be a lot easier on you. I mean, to a point. Yeah, I mean, ironically, it's a lot of the decisions for which, you know, the the options are probably equally attractive, and and you probably be just about as well off in either scenario. Um, Those are often the ones that we agonize over the most, put off, try to to kick over to somebody else, and, and have a difficult time kind of embracing and just, um, making the call. Yeah. No, that's good. That's really good. Is it, um, I, I guess, another part of this, uh, some people might, th- there's this weird concept in communication theory where if I if I show you that I'm trying to understand your point of view, you might get this idea that I'm going to go along with your point of view. Oh, interesting. So I so I almost don't want to understand you anymore because I don't want to set the <laughs> expectation that I will do what you say or think. So so how do we manage that? I guess that's just expectation management. You know, setting clear expectations um, for you know what the criteria are that you use to make the decision and um, can be a great way to kind of mitigate, you know, any concern that people might have, say, over the outcome, because, you know, I think people have a a tendency in hindsight to look at a decision and think, oh, they should have known better. They should have known that this is going to be a crappy movie or, you know, that I wasn't going to like it. And and I think oftentimes if you can be explicit about kind of what you were thinking about when you made the decision, if that sounds pretty reasonable, people might be a little bit more willing to to forgive you if you ended up, you know, not quite hitting the mark. Well, like if you're going out to a movie with your friends, you don't have to say, we are going to this movie. You could just say, so I heard from so-and-so at my office who recommended that one movie we went to. You can tell where you got your data. And he, he said it was a really good one. But remember, this one's a little quirky, so it might not be as good. Anyway, just you can set the expectation. Oh, sure. Well, and in that case, it almost sounds 
like it comes across sounding like you're giving advice rather than making the decision on behalf of others. And in that case, I think oftentimes you end up sharing that responsibility with with everybody else rather than taking it all on yourself. Mm. I guess that's it, huh? Is and it's because we're social beings. We want to incorporate. We want to include everyone. We want it to be ideal. Except we're also so afraid. It seems like of not just it's it's not just fear. It's everything. It's authority. Who's the best decision maker? It's pleasing that one friend that you know never likes a movie, and she'll be there. It's absolutely. Um, my collaborator and I on this project, when we were uh, doing a postdoc together, all the the students and faculty go out to lunch every day as a group, and we get to the bottom of the stairwell and 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 start thinking about where we should be walking for lunch. And that was the time where everybody started calling not it. You know, nobody wanted to be the one to make the decision about where to go because nobody wanted to be responsible if there was somebody who really didn't like that restaurant or wasn't happy with what they got. And, <laughs> you know, that's certainly a great example true. of these kinds of situations totally. where you know, I might be fine making a decision if it's just me going out to eat. But when I know other people's uh, happiness is on the line, I might be less likely to, to want to do so. And, I mean, you see that with friends when you go out to dinner with friends, other couples or whatever. You're like, so, where do you guys want? No one wants to make the decision. And I've, I've driven around. Have you ever driven around, like, for an hour trying to decide what you're going to do? That's oh, pathetic. We'll spend about an hour looking through all the, the movie trailers to decide which movie to watch on uh, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Or you, you were going to go out to a movie, but you've wasted so much time. Let's just stay in and maybe... Let's just have cereal and watch whatever <laughs> reruns are on. Um, well, that's actually one of the perks of delegation. That's one of the upsides here in that um, I think oftentimes, you know, in situations like that, you could spend an hour trying to watch movie trailers to figure out what the perfect movie is going to be to watch mm. and end up not watching anything else um, because you just can't make up your mind. Um, when you have the option to delegate that decision to somebody else, whether it be a family member or a salesperson or, or someone else that you trust, oftentimes those kinds of decisions become much less overwhelming and you're more likely to purchase something or, yeah. or watch some movie because yeah. you have the ability to say, look, I'm thinking about this one and this one. You tell me what to do. There you go. Yeah. And uh, with couples, when I coach couples, um, if they get to an impasse like that and and really, yeah. no one has a super strong feeling, but they have they each have an idea. I always just say flip a coin. I mean, let mm-hmm. let let the divine make the decision by a coin flip. Not don't spend hours wasting time discussing. If it's important, do. But if it's just what movie are we going to? Okay, you pick one. I'll pick one. We'll flip a coin to see which one we go to. Random. And what's funny about that is that works really well for personal decisions because yeah. it's a way to mitigate regret. You don't have to kick yourself for making the decision because you left it up to fate. You yeah. know? Um, but what's funny is that when it comes to making decisions for other people, that mm. doesn't that no. doesn't fly quite so well, right? You, right. you can't blame the coin. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna they're gonna point their finger at you, not at that. That's so, right. And if you're making so, a company decision or a right. Absolutely. So what we find in in this research is actually when people are making decisions for others versus themselves, they're more likely to delegate, but they're not more likely to take other kind of easy ways out, like flipping a coin or putting it off. Randomness. Yeah. Yeah, because those things don't really absolve them of responsibility, and that's really what people are looking to do. Isn't that interesting? Oh, man, so much to learn. 
getting rid of our responsibility. Well, Mary, we appreciate your great work there and uh, keep it up. We'd love to have you back to talk more about decision-making down the road. Dr. Mary Steffel's her name, and you can find out more by going to her website, uh, marysteffel.com. Let me make sure I got that right. Mary Steffel, S-T-E-F-F-E-L.com. Great resource uh, for all of us on our decision-making. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number two of the program. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. What great advice. Uh, instead of taking the perspective of other, which is is a really big thing we teach in psychology about humans have the ability to try to understand how another is thinking, feeling, seeing the world. You could just – so instead of perspective taking, you could go get perspective getting – you could just say, hey, I'm really trying to work through a decision I need to make on this issue. I wanted your insight. I wanted your input. It builds trust. It shows that you care. It shows that you're willing to listen. It doesn't mean that you have to do what they say. I'm just looking for your input. What do you think about this? And just gather information, gather information. If you end up making the decision exactly as that person would, boom, you scored. If you don't, you still can understand how what they were feeling and then go back, circle back, and tell them why you made the decision. Um, opening up communication, it's going to pay for you. It'll always give you at least the information. Most communication, remember, isn't about talking. It's about understanding. The more understanding we have, the better we can make decisions. Bada-boom, bada-bing. It's hour number two. We'll be back, folks. Next hour, more fun, more insight to help you live longer. This is the Matt Townsend Show.